Hello, church. My name is Laura, and we will now be reading today's passage in the scriptures from Genesis 2:18 and Matthew 22:36-40. Please follow along in your own Bible or the screen. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Genesis 2.18 Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments de depend all the law and the prophets. Matthew 22.36-40 this is the reading of God's word. Uh, well, welcome again uh, to True North. Again, my name is Eugene. I'm a member of the pastoral staff. I have the privilege of giving the message. Uh, we've come to the conclusion of our sermon series through the idea of Imago Dei or the idea of being made in God's image. And I'll be honest, uh, we, or myself, but the staff as well, Pulled a little audible. Uh, we changed the sermon midweek. I was going to finish off the sermon series with uh, a sermon on how if you're made in the image of God, it reflects and should shape how you work and your vocation. But I'm going to be honest, we've talked about that a lot. Uh, me and Jay have talked about multiple sermons on that. And honestly, like I think all of us are sick about hearing about work. Um, so our staff midweek uh, convinced, uh, through a mutual decision, um, we thought it'd be best. I'm blinded by blue. Oh, sorry. I see why. Um, we thought it'd be best uh, to kind of continue, if you were here last week, uh, with the idea of if we're made in the image of God, we are relational beings. And what I want to do today is this, almost of an extension of last week's sermon, how does that now practically change our relationships in ourselves and those around us? So today I want to get as practical as possible, um, and, and hopefully it's helpful, it will be a, a glut of information, but... To start off, I, I think to kind of summarize the best way, if you weren't here last week, uh, of what I was talking about is this. Uh, there's an old theologian by the name of Johann Herder. Um, it might be on the screen if they have it, but if not, it's all good. Uh, if you just follow along with what he says. No one of us become human by oneself. The whole structure of one's humanity is connected by a spiritual birth with education, with parents, teachers, friends, into whatever hands one falls, by them one is formed. Uh, what Herder is, is kind of trying to draw out is basically the whole summary of last week. If we're made in the image of God, we are not just individual beings, but we are relational creatures and beings. We're social animals. And if that's true, that means this. You have been formed by those around you, and also you have the power to either rebuild and repair or to deform and destruct those around you. If we're all made in the image of God, not just yourself, but those around you, you have the power to affect and change the souls of those around you. And what that means is this, the, the whole core of this message today will be simply this, to bear the image of God in this fallen world is to both repair the image of God in ourselves and to repair the image of God around us and the people around us. What do I mean? Well, Scripture tells us this, and we read two passages today in Genesis 2.18. It's a famous passage, and usually um, that passage is used to denote gender roles and male and female, but I would argue this. When God tells Adam, it's not good for you to be alone, and he says, I will create a helper for you. 
Oftentimes, historically, the church has taken that to be, oh, the female is called to be subordinate of the male. And that's a whole other sermon, an idea, which I don't want to get into, but I would argue that's actually not the point. Uh, that word has no gender, uh, gender or power dynamics. What God is saying is this. When he created man and woman in the image of God, and think about this. In Genesis 1.26, God says, I, in the image of myself, in my likeness, I will create them. And he says male and female because he's already showing us the, the, the function of humanity is to be in a relationship. When he says it's not good for man to be alone and I'm going to create Eve to be your helper, what God is saying is this. That word helper in the Hebrew means to complete and to repair. We are called not just to worry about ourselves, but to repair and to build up the images of God around us. And Jesus takes it further in the great commandment, which we used last week, but I'm going to use this week as well. Like, if you look closely at the grammar, you have to remember the lawyer asked Jesus, what's the one singular great commandment? What's the one thing you can tell me, Jesus, to, to help me figure out my life? And Jesus, he, he's not a man of simple black and white. He gives him two commandments. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Why does he do that? Because in his mind, those both are one connected commandment. In following from Genesis 2.18, that we're not created to be alone, Jesus follows up by saying, if you love God with everything you have, you must also love your neighbor as yourself. If we're made in the image of God, we're not called just to live alone. We're called to live in relationship, and not just in relationship, but to repair the relationships around us. And I would argue this. You might think, oh, this is a cool like, self-help sermon about relationships. That's not the point. I would often even argue this. The church's greatest tool and witness is our relationships. Um, Richard Plass, who, who is a Christian counselor, he puts it this way. It'll be up on the screen behind me. The evangelical witness of the 21st century in the Western world is, or sorry, will be a relational witness. There will be many who have no idea how to do relationships so that their lives feel fulfilled and have a sense that they are thriving. While the gospel shall ever be true and the truth of the gospel will ever frame our orthodoxy, our apologetic, or basically the way that we can convince people that Jesus is real, is not going to be the compelling expression of ideas as much as the quality of our relationships as the people of God. Look, we live in an era of rising divorce rates of broken families where depression and suicide is skyrocketing. We live in an era where churches, where leaders and pastors are falling week by week to scandal and to sexual affairs. We live in a world of broken relationships. One of our greatest witnesses and strengths of a church is to show people this is what it means to live in community in a healthy, holistic way that God designed us to be. And I want to be clear, ideas still matter. The truth of God still does matter. That's the core of who we are. But ideas don't change people. Relationships do. And you have to, you have to note this. I heard this last week uh, listening to a podcast. All of us, the people of this moment, we all deeply desire community, but bluntly, we have no idea how to get it because COVID messed us up and our individualistic tendencies have messed us up. We all want community. But if you ask anyone on the street, well, how do you get community? Often it's a confusing answer. And this is the thing. Jesus knew this. Listen to what Jesus says. 
in the first century. In John 13, he, he speaks to the people. He says this, a new commandment I give to you. Again, this is the same message over and over again. Love one another as I have loved you, so you, must, uh, you also must love one another. And this is a key verse. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Think about what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is this, even how I want you as a church to convince people that I'm real is not arguing with people about ideas, it's showing them the strength and beauty of the relationships that you have. Like, you know this. You know why? It, it, and let me speak really quickly to those who say that they are, are a believer and Christian and they're here. Why are you here at True North? How did you come to faith? I would argue this, one out of 1,000 people I meet, it's an ideological change. It's like, dude, I heard, I found this amazing tract. I listened to this amazing sermon and my life was changed. And if that's you, God bless you, that's awesome. The majority of you that are here, it's like, well, someone invited me to basketball in college and now I'm a Christian, right? My family dragged me to church for years and years and years and there was all periods of ups and downs, but somehow through those relationships, I found Christ. Ideas, they light up the mind. Relationships will change the soul. Relationships have power. And that is what we're called to do if we're made in the image of God. That we're called to repair the relationships around us. That is our call as a church. That is our call as a human being. And before we do that, before we repair the relationships around us, we're called to repair our own image that we've been given by God. To effectively repair and heal those around you, you got to heal yourself. Um, how do I know this? Uh, look, if we're created, just to give a recap, in the image of a relational God. Remember the whole point of last week when I preached was we worship a God that is not a God, but he is one being with three persons. He's in a perfect relationship. Then we are deeply affected and formed by the core relationships of our past because that's how we're designed to be. We're relational people. You are not your desires. I've talked about this enough, but I'll give one example. Again, for my clothes, like this, this jacket from Uniqlo that I got, I would love to believe like this is why, this is who I am. This is an expression of Eugene. You know why I probably got this? I probably saw it on Instagram and through that fractured relationship, that affected how I wanted to buy this piece of fashion. That's a small example, but on a bigger scale, who you are right now, you did not form yourself. You were formed by your past, and especially your families of origin. You are a culmination of the past relationships around you, whether healthy or toxic, whether full or broken. They make up who you are. And remember this. You might have heard this before, but I want to reiterate this. When Jesus gives the commandment in verse 39, there's two. Again, Jesus is, there's never anything simple with Jesus, although you think it to be. There's always depths and layers to who Jesus is. And even his commandments, Jesus tells us this. You shall love your neighbor as what? As yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are two commandments. For you to be able to love those around you, you've got to learn how to love yourself. I'm not talking about self-help. Hey, love yourself in the way of like going on a vacation or whatever that might be. That, that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, can you look to your past and heal also what's been done to you? You have to come to know yourself as an integrated whole person to be able to unlock the capacity to become those that can repair those around you. How can we 
see this mentally. Well, it, here's a mental picture. Um, there, there'll be a picture of a, a broken vase and, and uh, not a broken vase. Um, if you guys don't know what this is, there's a, uh, I'm not really into pottery, but um, I read this. Uh, in, Jap in Japan, there's, there's a form of pottery called kintsugi, which basically means mending the cracks. So what they would do is they'll take a broken piece of pottery, whether it's uh, on purpose or not, and mend it with gold to make it into a new piece of pottery. So in Japanese, the word kin means gold, and the word sugi means to mend or rejoin. And the whole philosophy of why this is uh, created is this. The idea is the breakage and also the repair becomes a part of the history of the object rather than something to disguise and hide. So in this form of pottery, although something is broken, a potter in this form of, of, of how they do pottery would not see like, oh, that's something we've got to move on to. They would see, wait, wait, wait. That's actually pieces to make something even more, more beautiful than the original product. Why do I mention this? Uh, this is ultimately what God is calling us to do if we're made in the image of God. We all have cracks. We all have brokenness. We all have scars deep down in our soul. And often, we do our best to hide it. We don't mend it. We do our best. If it breaks apart, we do everything we can to mask those parts of ourselves. You know how I know this? It's biblical. In Genesis 3-7, when Adam and Eve fall, you know what the first thing that they do is? They, they make sure that they hide their past. Genesis 3-7, and the eyes of both of them were opened, Adam and Eve, and they realized they were naked after they fell, after they committed sin. So what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. From sin, we intrinsically do the same thing that Adam and Eve have done on a daily basis. We, in, we always hide the cracks, scars, and brokenness of our relational image of our past. Yet, what this, you know, it, that pottery, that picture, what that shows you is just as that gold renders a former broken pottery into something more valuable, so can Christ do with our past. That is what Jesus is offering us if we're made in the image of God. Because this is the thing, that image that you have, that you're made, has been cracked, broken, spit on, stepped on, whatever it may be. And when Jesus looks at that, what he says is, I, I don't see a broken piece of pottery. I see something that can become so much more beautiful. So what do we do? And this is the thing. For often, many of us, and I, I would say generally males, but this is just a generalization, um, we don't want to deal with our past because it's, it's a painful process. And often I hear this. You know what, Eugene? I don't need to deal with my past because when I look at my past, I don't feel anything, so that means I've moved on, right? I'm, I'm numb to my past. All I feel is, I feel nothing. You know, like, for example, uh, hey, look, maybe your parents have left you, and you know what you say, like, dude, dude my, my mom left me, I don't feel anything, so I'm fine. No, 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 the very fact that you don't feel anything is a sign that you are not fine. Like, you know how I know this? That's me. Uh, when, when I was growing up, I, I was really anti, um, like, therapy and mental health. I thought that was a sign of weakness. My wife would always be like, you should see therapy. I'd be like, you should see therapy, yo. Like, chill out, right? <laughs> but I started seeing my therapist, right? And one thing he had, I, I have such difficulty with doing, he's like, what does this make you feel? And I'm always like, dude, I, you know, I don't feel anything. I just, I just logically I'm trying to explain this. And he's always like, no, 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 what does this make you feel? And I always tell him, like, I always try to logic my way out. And what he's doing is like, stop. What you're doing is a defense mechanism. Because what he says, and he told me something that has blew my mind to this point. 
Um, what he says is, if you feel no emotion, if you feel apathy, even if you feel anger, which is not a true emotion, but that's a whole other thing, that, that's a narcotic, that's not medicinal. So what he was saying is, um, you know, if you take THC or something, let's say you take ibuprofen, right, or Vicodin, um, or whatever it may be. Let's say you sprained your ankle. Well, hopefully you're not taking Vicodin. Let's just say ibuprofen, okay? Let's say you take that. What are you doing when you take that? Are you healing your ankle? No. You take that so that you can numb the pain your ankle gives you, so you don't have to deal with it. But does it fix your ankle? No. It, does, it actually, if you take too much and think you're okay and keep running and walking on it, you'll make it worse. That is what we're doing all the time. If you look to your past, and I'll be honest, um, for the majority, for a lot of us from immigrant families or especially Asian American families, no one has taught you how to do this. Like, you know how I know this? Like, in worship, I see us, and when we worship, we worship like stone statues, right? <laughs> we, we don't know what to do with our emotions because we've hid them for so long, and we have to realize this from the fall, our first instinct from any pain or trauma from our past will always be to cover it with apathy, with narcotics, with fig leaves, so that we can make ourselves presentable to God and to other people. But when you do that, you're only making the image of God in you break apart even more. What we're called to do instead is two things. We have to learn to own up to your past and share your past. Own up to your past and share your past. Because again, I wanna break this into your minds. You are not the culmination of your ideas. You are not the culmination of your desires. You are the culmination of the relationships of your past. And although that sounds like it's chaining you, you have freedom if you can work through it with God. First is, is you have to own your past. Whatever you do not own, whatever you do not name, will either own or name you. For many of us, when we look at the past, we just ignore it like a, like a broke, like a hidden room in the house of our, you know, in the corner of our house. We just lock it up and just never open it up and it just rots and festers. One of the first things that we gotta do is we gotta own up to our past. What that means is, is we have to articulate what's going on. I've used this quote a lot, but I hope it's helpful. Uh, Lewis Hyde uh, puts it this way. Sometimes we are unable to escape from a bad mood until we have correctly articulated the feeling. Articulation, when, when you name it, when you own it, when you actually say what happened, it allows a slight gap to open between the feeling and the self, and that gap permits the freedom of both. Does that make sense? So much of our life, especially from our past, because you don't want to deal with it because, oh, you know what, I don't feel anything, so I'm fine. You, the emotions of the past and who you are, they become entangled into one. The image of God in you is not tainted by all this stuff going on. And I would even take it further from Lewis Hyde, who I don't believe is a Christian. I would say this, when you articulate, meaning when you write down, when you think about actively, I'm not talking about, you know what, I'm gonna, I, meant, I remember, you know, vast memories I'm thinking about. When you have time in your life to name your past, what happens is you allow this gap to occur, and I will take it even further, the gap allows God to come in. So many of us with our past, our emotions and ourself are so intertwined, God can do nothing with it. But when you are articulate what's going on. When you name it, it opens it up. And, and I would say this, if that's true, what we got to do is we got to get in tune with our emotions. And I'm telling you this as one of the most non-emotional thinkers at our church. I love thinking. I hate feeling because thinking is easy. You can change your thoughts. 
You can change whatever you're thinking and the ideas that you have. Emotions are much more difficult because you often begin to realize you cannot control your emotions. And, and this is the thing. We're terrified of our emotions, but when you look at Jesus, he was a man of vast public displays of emotion. He cried. He laughed. He shouted. He was tired. He let people know how he was feeling because he knew this. Emotions are not a sign of weakness they're vitals for your soul's health. You know, if, you, if, you're, if you're like me and you're like, you know what, I don't feel anything. I, I can think my way through anything. That's like saying, dude, I feel pain in my chest, but I'm not going to get an MRI. Emotions tell you how you're doing. So you got to just articulate how you have felt in your past. It's as simple as that. I'm not saying that will solve everything. Because secondly, as you own your past, you have to share your past. As you own your past, you have to share your past. When you look back at the fall, when, when Adam and Eve uh, fall and they hide themselves, God comes, and one thing God does, if you look at the story that's very particular, is he keeps asking them, what happened? Who did this to you? Who told you that? What did you do? Why is God doing that? And, and you often would think like, ooh, God's angry. He's trying to punish Adam and Eve. And this is the thing, he's not trying to make them confess out of spite, but out of love. Because God knows if we're made in his image, if we're relational people and that we fall and that we're broken, the first step to healing it is to own it and then to share it. And I want to be very careful. You share it with trusted people. You don't tell everyone because some people will weaponize your past against you. But you find trusted people in your life to constantly share what you're most ashamed of. You know why you do that? Again, Think about this, we're made in the image of God, we're relational beings, and if that's true, we're very malleable, we're very, we, we can be easily changed. And shame always tells you a story. If you don't share your past, what you're saying is I'm ashamed of my past, and that shame tells you a story, and you need people in your life to tell you a better, different story. You need people in your life to tell you, even though I was abused, I am still worthy to be loved. You need people in your life to tell you, even though my parents left me, I can trust that I will not leave. You can trust that I will not leave you. You need people to change the stories that your past are telling you. Because even neurologically, I'm talking about the chemistry of your brain, God has even designed this so that, studies have shown, our brain begins to change and more neurons begin to fire when we feel like we're being seen by others. That's how God designed us. Does that make sense? We need to share what's going on and build a cycle of trust. And when you share it with trusted people, they allow you to live in, I will be okay. Sorry, they will allow you not to live in the, I will be okay, but I am okay. It will allow you to live in not that I will be okay, because this is the thing. Although you share your past, some things might happen in the future that mess you up. But trusted people, and especially if you share this with God and you allow Christ to come in and mend those cracks, you can always tell yourself, I will be okay. I am okay because I have God. And this is the thing. When, when brokenness and pain and trauma are mended with God as we own it and as we share it, all of that pain in the image of God that we're created in becomes something new. Like just as we remember the picture of the, the broken pottery that's all of a sudden with this gold, and it's a brand new piece of pottery, 
when we mend the trauma in our life, we, we, we turn it to something new. We turn it into a language that can speak into the dividing gap of this broken world filled with broken people. And this is, this is the second part of the sermon. For us, the reason we gotta deal with our past is because then it allows us to help repair those around us. Again, God is calling us not to live an individualistic life. Remember what Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and often we end there. But he says, connected, it's not two commandments, it's one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's through love that we can all of a sudden repair not just our own image that we're made in, but the image of God in every single human being around us. Because all of us, you have to realize, all of us carry the same brokenness that we do. So how do we do that? How are we now, if we work on ourselves, how can we love those around us? And this is a tough thing. We live in a world of fake love. Fake love, like Drake is real, like love is not real out here, right? You know how I know this? Love is not easy outside of our fantasies. Love is easy when you think about it, but when you do it, it's a whole nother story. Um, you know, Eli, my son's f- uh, four, we just went to Disney on Ice yesterday um, in, in, at Oracle Arena. And man, it was a mess going in. Like if you, if you wanna see sin, like if you're late to a Disney on Ice, man, families will go crazy. But anyways, we're, we're late. We get in, and we just make it to Frozen, which is like Sydney's favorite. So we're really happy, and then Elsa's dancing, and you know, Sydney's like, she's loving it, but Eli's like loving it. I was like, what the? He's like enamored by the Elsa the dancer, or the ice skater. And at the end of um, Let It Go, like everyone's like clapping, and Eli out of nowhere screams, I love you, Elsa! And if you know my son, like that's not him. I was like, what the? I was like, Eli, what'd you say? He's like, I love you, Elsa. Like he looked at me. And you know, at that moment, in his mind, he's like, that love is real, right? But as his father, I was like, that love is fake, yo. That's emotional BS, right? That's not real love. We all know this, right? We're, we live in a world of fake love. Another example, when you're at the mall and you see middle schoolers having heavy PDA, what do you do? You're like, oh, that's disgusting, right? That's cringy because that love is fake. You do not love that person. You love the emotions. You love the hormones that are all of a sudden ticking off in your head. That's what you're in love with. But when you see an older couple, when you see a couple in a deathbed showing signs of affection, that's much more different because that love is real. And what Jesus is calling us to do is if we're called to repair the brokenness around us, not just in ourselves but those around us, it's not fake love. It's the love that Jesus displays to us. Uh, Richard Rollheiser, or sorry, Ronald Rollheiser puts it even better. All initial falling in love is mainly an illusion. Ultimately, you are in love with being in love. The other person, or even God, becomes secondary. Secondary. When the fantasy of love dies, so too does a sense of being in love. We often fall in love without really knowing the other person, and we fall out of love without really knowing the other person. Why? Because we're more in love with love than loving the person in front of us. What Jesus says is this. He, he's pushing us to, ha- to carry a love that repairs. That's not concerned about yourself, but actually concerned about the other. And that's a hard love to do. Jesus is pushing us past, to a, past a superficial love that we all know deep down inside. That middle school that you see and you get cringed out, often we do the same thing. With the friends that we have, we're close to those that make us feel love, but the minute they don't, our love disappears. Even in our marriages, if you are married, you know this to be true. 
the reason you make a vow, the reason you make a legal contract, not just in front of the pastor, but in front of the state, is because you know, man, there's gonna be times where I look at you and I'm like, I don't love you, but I signed a contract that says if I wanna divorce you, it's gonna cost a lot of money, right? That's why you do that, because you know deep down inside, love is hard. It's not easy. And what Jesus is saying is push deeper into that love. Why? Because that is the love that can repair the brokenness, not just inside of you, but inside of everyone around you. So how do you do this? And this could be so many different ways, but I want to focus on one specific practical takeaway for you. If we're called to love with this self-giving, sacrificial love, not this self-centered love, the tangible way to repair the relationships around us is this, by becoming a non-anxious presence. By becoming a non-anxious presence. What do I mean by that? First uh, John 4, 19, John writes this, and this is really helpful because the idea of love is really flushed out in the New Testament. And what John does is he says, look, let me tell you the opposite of love. Let me tell you, if, if you want to get into the real love, the love that repairs, the love that heals, the love that gives, this is what you can't do. And John says a lot of things, but John says one thing, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. What John is saying is this. So much of our life is filled with fear and anxiety. Whether it's your vocation, whether it's your children, whether it's your future. And what happens is when you live in a broken world that, that, that is in the Garden of Eden, but that is filled with sin and brokenness, anxiety and fear fills your heart. You get anxious about, man, am I going to get laid off tomorrow? Because I keep reading these reports. You get fearful about, like, man, am I always never going to find someone that actually cares about who I am? And all this anxiety builds in your heart. And you know what we do with that anxiety? We don't know what to do with it, so we dump it. We dump it where? In the relationships around us. Relationships, all of a sudden, rather than being a place of love, they become a place where we can dump all the anxiety and fears of our life into that other person, subconsciously or consciously. And what John is adamant about is this, the love we have been given by Christ and commanded to do so will reverse this cycle. How do we do that? How do we, how do we become a non-anxious presence? We have to value compassion over animosity. I'll explain it like this. Um, when you look at Jesus' life, What's one thing that characterized how he lived in his relationships? It was a deep, deep sense of curiosity. He was a very curious person. He's always, if you look at Jesus, he never talks in statements. He always asks questions. If you look at the Gospels, the way that he speaks in life, in the recorded Gospels, the majority of how he speaks is not in statements of truth. This is who I am. It's in, well, who are you and why are you here? Why does he do that? Because he knows his curiosity will always trump his frustration. Look, Jesus was human. He got frustrated all the time. But yet, he always chose to go deeper into his curiosity. Je Jesus never assumed that people, whatever that they were doing was their actual self. So this is what I mean. Jesus knew that when we fell, we're always hiding who we are. We're always hiding who we are. Jesus knew that. So that's why Jesus didn't get angry easily. He didn't get angry at times, but it was very hard to rile up his anger. Why? Because he knew in his curiosity, the people that he is dealing with on a daily basis, his disciples, the crowns, the government, the Pharisees, they're all broken people. 
Think about disciples. Disciples are filled with anxiety. They're like jockeying who's the most powerful disciple here. That's what they're doing on the way to the cross. Think about the crowds. They're anxious because this person has come and says, I can heal anyone. They're anxious to use Jesus. Think about the Roman government or the Pharisees. They're anxious because they have all this power. Like, who is this fool saying that he's the savior of the world? How does Jesus respond to all that anxiety and fear? By becoming a non-anxious presence, by becoming curious. Think about the woman at the well. When Jesus meets the woman at the well, what does he do? His first thing to do is to ask question after question after question. When Jesus meets Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector, who's a sworn enemy of the Jews, and when Jesus sees that he's hiding to look at Jesus, Jesus could be like, yo, you're an enemy. You're an op. Why are you here? Jesus doesn't do that. He asks more and more questions. Because Jesus understood this. When someone triggers frustration in your life, they're revealing something more about themselves and who you are. When anyone triggers frustration or when anyone does anything unkind to you, they're revealing more about who they are than who you are. Often we quickly respond as it's an attack on ourself. You know, in marriage, you know that me and my wife, whenever she says something snappy to me or whenever I say something snappy to her, our first reaction to is like, who do you think you are? Why are you attacking my character? But in, in, in our work, in our own marriage, we've realized, wait a second, when I'm unkind to you and when you're unkind to me, it's not that I'm attacking you. I'm revealing my own anxiety and my own fears. They're just, I'm just trying to dump my fears onto you. So this is the thing. What, let me get it as practical as possible. How do we do all this? We have to be curious. This is the thing. I've, I, you know, I've been in church a long time. I've heard this message so many times. Love people. Go and do it. Amen. You know how hard that is to love people? Like, I'm, I'm married, I'm a pastor, I, and you work with people. You know, it's hard because people suck, right? Why? Because people are sinners. It's so hard to love people. So, you know, when, when you hear, like, just love, like, that's, come on. How do, you, how, do you, how do you love? It's through curiosity. You have to fight to be curious over frustrated. That's how you do it. Let me guess. I'm getting as practical as possible. If you are made in the image of God and you are healing your own self, how can you heal those around you? You have to, be, you have to fight to be more curious and frustrated. You know why? Curiosity will slowly always lead to compassion. Frustration unchecked will always lead to animosity. And this is the thing. I'm not saying to not be frustrated because that's just part of human nature. Jesus was very frustrated. Like he gets really like... When you read about Jesus and the disciples, as a dad, I'm like, dude, I feel you, Jesus, right? I get it. I get it. But yet, Jesus never lets his frustration overtake his curiosity. To love well is to be curious people. If, if you're just like, I'm going to love those around me with my willpower, you're going to fail tomorrow. Because curiosity will lead to compassion. And what compassion does is no longer do you see someone trying to attack you. You see someone broken trying to reach out for help. Al Noble puts it really well. Given how easy it is to avoid vulnerability in this contemporary world, we can't assume that just because people around us haven't shared their trauma and suffering that they are okay. Let me repeat that again. Given how easy it is to avoid vulnerability in this contemporary world, we cannot assume that just because people around us haven't shared their trauma and suffering that they are okay. You are better off, and I'm, this is the thing, I'm not talking about strangers, I'm talking about your spouse, I'm talking about your parents, I'm talking about your children, I'm talking about friends, I'm talking about those you hate. You are better off assuming that everyone you meet 
is bearing some unspoken burden. Everyone. Um, have you guys watched Physical 100? Oh, this is a wild turn. Um, that show. If you, do, if you don't know that show, it's like a physical show that like all these super athletes go in Korea. And it's like, who is the most athletic person? One of the last challenges was they had to take this like 200-pound ball of stone and just carry it on their backs and see who lasts the longest, right? And like one person does it and just falls. Another person doesn't fall. And there's like these two people just there for two hours just grinding, right? And you, you watch the show because it's like, dude, that sucks, right? And in TikToks, I've seen people try it, and they can't last a minute. So these people are really strong. And, and it's such a good mental picture. That is who you're dealing with every day. People who have this unspeakable burden that's almost invisible, and you're like, man, why are they sweaty? Why are they cursing at me? Like, why, 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 why are they not looking at me? Because we, we fail to see the, that weight that they're holding. So if that's true, and Jesus says, love them as you would love yourself. What are we called to do? Like, look, be curious. How do you do that? Um, ask questions more than giving solutions. Um, anxiety and fear, it's not something to be solved. I wish it was. I wish it was, because it'd be easy. But if you're married, you know this. If you're, uh, if you're, you know, when my wife tells me her problems, I'm always like, let me solve it for you. Just do this. And internally, she's always like, just listen to me, right? I don't need your solutions because they don't work. I don't want to hear anything. Just listen, right? I'm like, oh, my bad, right? I have to always remind myself why. Anxiety and fear, it can never be solved. It can only be healed through hearing and compassion. Like when, when people are around you and they annoy you, the first instinct is frustration that will lead to animosity. You've got to change it where it's like, well, why? Why are they doing that? And I talked about this. Right, if someone's talking with me, and, and you know, I, I give an example, uh, like let's just say, I'm going to say this again, and I said this last week, but I hope it's helpful. Let's say I ran the marathon, and I ran it in like this time, and I tell someone, dude, I ran the marathon this time. They're like, oh, that's cool. I ran it five minutes faster. You can take a lot of routes. You could be like, whoa, this guy's a jerk. I'm not going to talk to him. Or you are like, huh, why did he or she unprompted tell me that they ran faster? You might think, oh, maybe they're trying to dig at me. Or it's like, oh, wait, wait, no, no, no. I think they're insecure about something. That's why they're constantly trying to better up everyone around you. And when you do that, you're like, well, why are they trying to do that? Because you don't, you don't end up like that naturally. Something had to happen. When you go down that line, do you see how that changes how you can heal that relationship? Rather than being like, this guy's a jerk, I'm going to leave him alone. Always fight to be curious. It helps when you're curious, curious enough to deal with your own past. When you deal with your own past, you learn how to be curious about those around you because you realize I'm suffering the same symptoms that they are. I'll put it, I'll end with this. Jesus was curious enough about you to take himself to the cross. In all of your anxiety, in all of your fears, in all the ways you're trying to dump everything onto others and maybe even God himself, Jesus was curious enough and compassionate enough to lead his steps to Calvary to the cross, to say, even though these people, they do not know what they do, I will save them with my old body. I will save them with my blood. Christ has given us the power to mend our past, our, the images of God that we have. He has given us the power to mend our past through his body so that we can become people seeking to repair and restore all those around us who have the image of God. I wish Christianity was an individual thing. I wish it was like Jesus saved you and you're good, but it's not. Jesus saved you so that you can help others be saved by looking to him. 
So on with this. Look, there's, there's people in your life. I know there's people right now you're thinking about. Think about who just frustrates you the most. And you feel it physically. And I would argue this. When you look to Jesus, fight to be curious. Because that's, Jesus was curious with you. Fight to be curious about those who frustrate you. And more importantly, fight to be curious about your own past. Why are you the way that you are? And how can God heal you? I promise you, when we do those things, we can live a holistic life. The image of God will all of a sudden reign supremely then in our lives. Let's pray.